from Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Heather Clancy, filling in from New Jersey for the vacation Joel McCower. On this week's edition, what will it take to get greener plastics out of test tubes? Meet five startups tackling big energy ideas. And you can add carbon sequestration to the ever-growing list of processes that could benefit from blockchain technology. We're exploring the links this week on 350. It's August 24th, 2018. Welcome to Green Biz 350. Joining me this week is our transportation and mobility guru, senior writer and analyst, Katie Fehrenbacher. Hello, Katie. Hi, Heather. Hey, I don't know about you, but I feel like it hasn't slowed down this summer. No, not at all. <laughs> yeah, it's been pretty hectic, at yeah. least in green biz land. In green biz land, yeah. We're both working on some tremendously wonderful content for Verge 18. Uh, but I know you've been bopping around there as well. What, what's been keeping you busy this week? Well, so, well, one thing on Monday night, uh, we had a kind of fun happy hour that was for the alumni of the Green Biz 30 Under 30. Um, so that was pretty fun. And we had, I think there were six or seven of the alumni came and hung out with the team and um, got to meet some folks. And so that was super fun. Awesome. And you were um, down in the Valley this week, I think, visiting um, some incubators or an incubator. Yes. On Tuesday, I went down to Plug and Play, um, which is an accelerator in Sunnyvale. And they have a bunch of tracks that are focused on um, different types of startups and innovations. So they have things focused, you know, around blockchain. They have things focused around, um, you know, mobility. Um, and then this week they had a specific track focused on energy and sustainability. So I went down there to check out the pitches from a bunch of their startups. There was a, close to 30 companies pitching and they were great. There were some really um, interesting uh, and fun ideas and it was very refreshing. You know, um, I've been around for a while and um, a lot of times it seems like some of the, the startups that are building these kind of more really big solutions or kind of global do-gooder type solutions. Um, sometimes the pitches, you know, aren't as good as, as one would want them to be, but I was really surprised um, that uh, there were some really awesome and viable seeming companies in, in this track. Well, I'm going to quiz you about some of those companies a little bit later, but uh, I also want to point out that we have, speaking of pitch contests, the Verge Accelerate finalists were all were announced this week, and I encourage the listeners of this podcast to peek at the story. But there were 19 startups selected to uh, get the chance to pitch on the main stage at Verge 18 in Oakland in in October. And I'm brushing up myself on on who the the finalists are. It's a great group of of companies. For this year, and this year for the first time ever, we've chunked them into the, the main themes of the conference, energy, transportation, and circular economy um, sort of themes, if you will. And I, I'm, I'm peak, I've been peeking at the energy companies. One of the ones that really jumped out at me, and I probably shouldn't say this because it, maybe it shows favoritism, but, uh, but they've got to they've prove themselves on stage. But one of the companies that really fascinates me is um, Skyven Technologies, which is kind of a, taking a... a 
little bit of a different twist on renewable energy. They're working on renewable thermal technology. So their solar panels uh, working in, in tandem with processes at industrial facilities. And the idea is to obviously heat the water up and, and use that to drive some industrial processes. And I, I just am fascinated by the, the team behind it. There's a Texas Instruments, Shell, UPS, Airbus. So that's the on the executive team, that's the sort of ex expertise that this company has. So I can't wait to hear from them on stage. Is there anyone in particular you were looking at or or you don't want to show favoritism like me? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I there was one company that their pitch sounded particularly interesting to me. Um, they're called Sine Waves, I think is how you say it. And they basically take the vehicle data and I think they connect it with the traffic light infrastructure. So they're trying to um, better improve kind of mobility in cities, but also reduce congestion. Um, and when autonomous vehicles happen, I'm sure a lot of that type of data will be particularly useful to AVs. So I thought that startup pitch sounded particularly fascinating to me. Yep. Yep. I'll, I'll just point out one other company because actually they're featured later in the program, Regen Networks, which is uh, working with blockchain and regenerative agriculture. They're, they're finding ways of monitoring sort of the different processes on, on farms and, um, and looking at how that could benefit and um, be used to credit different uh, sustainability plans. So Stay tuned. Uh, absolutely be, be online um, or at Verge or on the live stream to, to hear the pitches in real time and, and definitely take a look at the story so you can see who you want to um, watch for and, and maybe you check them out ahead of time. With that, let's move on to the week in review. So I want to start this week with a story that actually is squarely in your beat, Katie, uh, a piece from a senior fellow at the University of California in San Diego uh, called The Foreseeable Future, How the Next Generation of Mobility Will Affect Cities. And for me, I, I was uh, sort of, this was a great synopsis or sort of um, a conglomeration of all the different land use and urban planning issues that might be impacted by things like electric vehicles and also autonomous vehicles. I was fascinated by some of the, the themes in here, you know, starting with the land use issue. I did not know, and this, I mean, I guess it doesn't surprise me when I, when I think about it, but over 50% of the land in Los Angeles is dedicated to automobiles. Like, whoa, you know, that just, what a waste. I mean, for people and for, you know, the, the planet. Uh, if you will, but but I was uh, encouraged to, to see how things like autonomous vehicles might change that. For example, you would see maybe fewer roads um, more, and maybe uh, a change to to benefit more pedestrians, if you will. Um, and then the other thing that really intrigued me, as I, I'm here in New Jersey, I mean, this is more of a suburban issue, for, uh, I, I guess, but uh, the idea that uh, you might not need a parking garage, like a, so many of the houses here, I mean, that's a big thing uh, in my little town. And do you have a garage? Can you park on the street? You know, can you park on the street overnight? And, you know, the idea that, that autonomous vehicles or ride sharing or so forth might be able to, you know, maybe I could turn my garage into a garden. <laughs> that would be sort of cool. But uh, what, what struck you in this story, Katie? 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is a fascinating topic, um, and it's one that we're going to dig into at Verge as well. And a couple months ago, I spoke with um, Jerry Tierney, who's an architect with uh, uh, Perkins and Will, and uh, he was telling me about kind of the vision is that um, eventually all vehicles will go to autonomous and on-demand, um, autonomous on-demand and shared. So um, the idea is that, you know, the personal owned vehicle is going to be more rare, you know, so in, in decades down the road. Um, and so that's going to um, dramatically change the way cities operate. And like you said, uh, you know, building new buildings, but completely eliminating the entire parking structure. So if all the vehicles are just driving around, dropping people off, there there doesn't need to be these huge parking structures. So, you know, Jerry had been working on um, kind of different forward-looking uh, real estate in, in San Francisco. There's one in Treasure Island. Um, and they're actually starting to think about these things when they're planning new new developments. So it, it's real, it's happening now, and, and it's really fascinating. The other thing that really struck me about this piece um, is the ec- economics portion of it and the sort of um, specifically the liability issue. And I'm thinking about this because I was just in Cleveland over the weekend and and my husband and I and our friends, we were there were the bird scooters were everywhere. We kept <laughs> running like we kept running across them. And then unfortunately and very sadly, we, we, we had an incident on Saturday night where one of the renters of those uh, scooters was killed mm. by, and it looks like maybe there was alcohol involved or, or impaired driving. We don't know yet, but that got me thinking about who's liable. Is it Bird? Is it the the you know like that person riding the scooter and and having you know do they have insurance to cover their ride? Is the vehicle insurance of the the driver that hit that person going to kick in? Like who's liable and responsible? And that. I think is a big issue that maybe we haven't given enough attention to. I know you're thinking about that a little bit, um, but it's one thing that's sort of in the back of my head going, wow, you know, what happens? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think it's particularly tricky when you look at things like um, the fact that, you know, these uh, scooters are driving on street on the sidewalks a lot. So say there was a collision with a pedestrian on the sidewalk, then, you know, like, Right. Who is liable for something like that? You know, particularly like if the city isn't taking enough measures to make sure that the um, the companies like Bird are complying with um, city sidewalk laws. Um, and also, you know, are the companies um, enforcing helmets enough? I mean, clearly not, because I rarely see anyone wearing helmets um, when they're riding these things. But yeah, I think there's a lot of issues that are that are coming up that cities are are trying to figure out how to how to operate with. On that happy note, <laughs> let's move on to our next story of the week. Uh, how will greener plastics move from lab to market? And this one is by Richard Gross. He's a professor of chemistry at the, at Rensselaer Polytechnic. And uh, again, this was one of those great pieces that kind of put put in one place. The, the very all of the different issues associated with greener plastics and um, it helped me understand all of the different research going on I mean there's when you talk about greener plastics in general there's so many different chemistries involved and so many different shapes and fibers being developed and so forth and I, I, I don't think that we have an appreciation for the depth of 
number one, um, innovation that's necessary here, but also number two, the, the, the actual depth of real cool work that's going on in the lab to design greener polymers, to come up with alternatives to making plastics from oil. But the, 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 the big but, if you will, here is that there's not a lot being done to, com to help commercialize those, those technologies. And so this was one of those, you know, aha, big gap things where um, the writer here is, is pointing out the fact that manufacturers need support to help integrate these sorts of materi new materials into their processes. It might take different equipment. It might take different temperatures and, and so forth um, of, of producing things, understanding how different components work together. And right now, um, the United States isn't doing much to support that. The European Union and Canada apparently are. And I suppose I could be sort of cynical and say, well, that's probably because oil um, is part of plastics and, and people don't want to mess with the oil ecosystem. But it was just a, a really insightful piece um, that, that sort of points the need for more commercialization. Yeah, I, I agree. I thought it was very fascinating also to just kind of he delve into the history of kind of how plastics emerged, um, which was interesting as well. And this is one thing that, you know, over the years when I've written about startups that are trying to build alternative plastics have faced this you know, so-called valley of death where, you know, they need so much financing to be able to create a, a plant to produce these materials at scale because once they produce them at scale is when they can hit those those lower economics but until they produce them at that level they're still a premium product so a lot of times these companies have uh, run into a lot of trouble and, and and gone bankrupt because they haven't been able to scale across that valley of death so again, on that happy note, <laughs> yeah, this is like boy, we're being like all like happy and bubbly this week, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, the final piece this week is actually really timely. Um, it's from the Rocky Mountain Institute. Four cost-effective ways cities can cut carbon and create jobs. This this story is just so well timed because also this week, um, for those of you who aren't on the the right coast instead of the left coast. Um, there was a proposal out of New York City to mandate reductions of 20% in energy use for some of the larger buildings across the city. And it's part of the, the, the larger picture um, mission of the, the city to reduce um, emissions by 80% by 2050. But the thing that struck me, and, and of course this, this proposal is far from law, is that many of the large real estate companies in New York City have supported this proposal. So it's one of those things where the legislation came out and it had like pretty much a who's who list of big um, landlords in the city is saying, yep, you know what, we we think this is necessary and actually this might help us get m better motivated. So this um, piece from Rocky Mountain Institute kind of points to, okay, you have the will, where's the way? And one of the biggest takeaways for me from it was maybe you know, real estate companies should be thinking more about how to embed sort of the upgrade conversation into what they call market intervention points. Like if the building is being sold or a new, you know, a new person is going to be leasing the building, you know, maybe that sort of, that's the time to have these discussions and to talk about these retrofits and that maybe you could get better support for them. So that for me was a, a, a key um, takeaway. 
Was there anything that struck you, Katie, you know, in particular from, from this piece? Um, you know, I think I, I agree with you. Um, that was one of the most interesting points that, you know, try to use these kind of trigger points or like the enabling factor um, to the transition of the building to kind of get that energy efficiency technology in there. Um, and, and it makes sense because, you know, solar is the same way. That's kind of how like Tesla, they're, when they're trying to sell their solar roof, they're saying, you know, this is a product for someone who's buying a new roof, basically, you know, instead of just buying solar panels to put off, you're replacing your entire roof. And that's how you make the economics work on their product. So I think a lot of um, energy infrastructure um, is like that. So it's interesting. So definitely going to be watching that law if it becomes one. And uh, for now, let's leave the week and we'll move on to our features. So Katie, as you referenced earlier, you spent some time with Plug and Play, one of the many um, innovation accelerators for which the Bay Area is known. You mentioned um, what inspired you to go down there, but uh, what, what do you think is, is makes this particular organization unique? So Plug and Play is focused on bringing together the, um, these startups with corporates, um, which is you know a pretty unique angle. And in that way, they're able to go into some of these smaller and, and uh, lesser populated areas. So for, for example, like energy and sustainability, you know, not all the tech accelerators focus on th things like that, but for plug and play, you know, they can bring in big corporates like Siemens or GE, and they can, you know, populate the room with not just the VCs from the corporate arms, but the actual, a lot of the, the, the people from the, the corporations to kind of learn, you know, what, what technology is out there, what technology is hot, you know, what some of these startups are thinking about. So it's, it's not just a way for them to invest in the startups, but also to kind of do R&D and just learn about um, technology in general. So I think that's, that's a pretty interesting angle. Do you have to be an, uh, an investor in the incubator in order to be like in the audience? Like, is, it, is there, you know, how, how does it figure out who to invite? Um, I mean, it was it was a private event, so it wasn't necessarily open to just kind of anyone coming off the street. But um, yeah, they carefully selected. Mostly, it was investors. Um, There's you know members of the media also, so they're you know trying to bring in attention to and press coverage for their companies. And yeah, I mean. It, it was a full room, so there was a lot of interest in these companies. And like I said, I was I was really surprised that um, there was a lot of kind of really interesting companies that were creating, you know, products that are trying to solve really big solutions. So I thought that was particularly exciting. Um, there was a lot of companies focused on batteries, which you know you've looked at a lot, energy storage in general, but. There was a couple companies um, that were building next next generation batteries, which you know as well as I is extremely difficult um, for a startup to build. You know, a, a new battery chemistry, so kind of more power to them. But there's a couple of those. Um, there were some. There was a startup building a nanotechnology coating for batteries. Um, so another materials play. One that was particularly interesting that um, I got to chat with the, the co-founder um, in the lunch line was a company called Weave Grid. 
he's building uh, a software that takes uh, electric vehicle charging data and it uses that to optimize the EV charging for utilities and residents um, and companies and the, and the charging providers. And basically the pitch is that, you know, in some neighborhoods, you know, people are coming home from work and plugging in their Teslas, um, you know, at 6 p.m. and overloading the grid in certain in certain neighborhoods that you know, are wealthy and early EV adopters. So this type of software can can um, run and and look at all that data and then, um, you know, man- manage the charging um, of those specific neighborhoods and um, make sure that certain of the grid infrastructure doesn't get, get overloaded. So that's like something they can sell to a utility. Mm-hmm. So I thought that one was interesting. Yeah, it also seemed like there was a, and this actually surprised me a little bit, there still seems to be a, a audience of, of startups or, you know, a, a cohort of, audi- of startups that are focusing on home energy uh, management and so mm-hmm. forth, you know, like sort of the apps. And I, I'm just curious, like, do you, did you see anything particularly different in that bunch of um, ideas? Yeah, I mean, so I didn't see anyone specifically doing kind of like that old kind of energy management, um, residential energy management play. But um, so there was one company called Breezy, which they're building this really interesting little sensor gadget, um, which they called the they called it their air pulse um, device. And basically you um, you just insert it into the air filter on your HVAC system. And so I, I'm not necessarily, necessarily sure that a regular consumer is going to want to buy one of these, but, um, but I just thought it was a really interesting technology. So they, it uses artificial intelligence and, um, and it listens to the vibrations, basically, um, of the system. And it can de- determine whether or not, you know, the, the air filter needs to be replaced or if um, the HVAC system is broken and can, um, can predict, you know, what is going on with the system and, and how to fix it. So I thought that was particularly interesting. But like I said, I don't know if the, the devices, they were putting it at around 50 bucks. I'm not sure a regular consumer is going to want to buy one of those, but I thought it was a cool idea. Yeah. So what's next for the, the, the companies that you met? While you were there, so one of the reasons they do these pitches is they're asking for something specific. I think they call, they even call it an ask in the pitch. Like they say, you know, my ask is, and then they say, you know, I'm looking for a strategic partner to help me get to market, or I'm raising a Series A round and I've closed a hundred thousand dollars of it, and I want two hundred thousand dollars more. So they a lot of times they have a really specific thing that they're trying to accomplish in the pitch itself. Um, And because plug and play is so successful at bringing in a lot of these corporates, um, they give the startups a really good opportunity to um, test out their technology with the corporate um, or, um, you know, get feedback from that audience. So if you're building a product for a utility, you obviously want to test it out with the utility and you want feedback from the utility. So um, the plug and play ecosystem is a, um, a really good way for startups to do that.
This is Shauna Rappaport reporting live from Long Beach, California, where the Electric Power Research Institute, widely known as EPRI, is hosting their annual Electrification 2018 conference. The event has attracted thousands of leaders from across the whole ecosystem, utilities, large commercial and industrial players, vendors, startups, and academics, all exploring the critical issues and opportunities of widespread electrification. I'm here now with Jill Anderson, the Vice President of Customer Programs and Services at Southern California Edison, one of the nation's largest electric utilities. Jill is responsible for leading SCE's energy efficiency, demand response, and clean self-generation program portfolios, among other functions. Hi, Jill. Hi, Shauna. How are you? Great. So, Los Angeles is working towards some pretty ambitious goals when it comes to electrification, from installing thousands of EV chargers to moving towards a fully electrified port here in Long Beach. Talk a little bit about Southern California Edison's role in all of this, and specifically the opportunity SCE sees in actively driving progress on electrification. We are committed to reducing greenhouse gases at Southern California Edison uh, for our customers and really creating a clean energy future. Last fall, we issued a plan called the Clean Power and Electrification Pathway, and that talks about the approach to decarbonizing our economy in three pillars. The first is energy supply uh, to the grid that's up to 80% carbon-free. The second is electrifying the transportation sector, and that means bringing 7 million cars on the road, cars and trucks, in California by 2030. And then the last is electrifying our buildings and getting to at least a third of the heat and hot water being supplied from electric technologies to our buildings. Well, we heard this morning a little bit about the role of innovation in all of this. And yesterday, I actually spent the day at the Accelerate Energy Summit, which convened leaders from startup incubators and accelerators uh, working with clean energy entrepreneurs all around the world. How does SCE, as a progressive utility, approach engaging with entrepreneurs? What's the role that you see them playing in, in advancing electrification and progress more broadly? It's absolutely critical that we are working with companies at all stages, you know, the incumbents and large manufacturers all the way down to the startups and people with with one idea and no customers yet. Uh, we have a program at SCE we call SCE Ideas. In fact, we have its own website, sceideas.com, where we are actively soliciting ideas from our customers, our employees, from startups uh, for solutions that are going to help us achieve this clean energy future. And we receive ideas every day, and my team goes through those applications. We reach out. We meet with companies, we pilot their technologies, uh, and learn as much as we can about how can we incorporate all of the innovation going on in the energy area in order for us to help our customers and the state achieve their goals. That's so great to hear, and is certainly before those entrepreneurs get to where they are, they need to have educational opportunities um, that, that, that get them there. And, and 
on a more personal note, I understand that one of your interests is actually encouraging young people to pursue careers in STEM, that is science, technology, engineering, and math. How can utilities and large companies promote STEM education, particularly among women and people of color who traditionally have less access to those career path opportunities? Well, this is an area I'm very personally passionate about. I'm a mechanical engineer myself, and I was inspired when I was in high school doing a program where we built mousetrap cars with rubber bands, and I thought, well, if I can do this, I could be an engineer. So I try to spend every opportunity that I can, and SCE has a lot of partnerships with groups like the Girl Scouts and with Project Scientist and others where we go into classrooms or into summer camps, and we talk about technology and we talk about our jobs to make sure that people, especially young women who might not know women who are in technical fields in their lives, see that you can do it. In fact, just a few weeks ago, I uh, spent a Friday morning at Caltech with Project Scientist and I brought these little solar-powered grasshoppers that SCE has, uh, and I put them out, and I brought my five-year-old daughter with me, and we talked about how does the solar panel help the little grasshopper jump around, and what happens when you take the sunlight away and the grasshopper stops moving, and what are all the opportunities for technology. And it is... It, it is so rewarding to see, you know, the interest and questions from, from in this case, it was all young women, ages four to seven, um, but you are opening their eyes to a possibility for them in the future. Well, I'm sure you were certainly a role model for them, as you are um, certainly for the rest of us as well. Thank you so much for your time. Jill Anderson is Vice President of Customer Programs and Services at Southern California Edison. Jill, thank you again for your leadership, for your vision. We look forward to hopefully hearing more about your and SCE's work at our upcoming Verge 18 conference in Oakland this October. Thanks again, Jill. Thank you so much. Our final feature this week also comes from Shauna, who's building several exciting sessions and workshops for the upcoming Verge 18. The subject of her next interview, the role of blockchain technology in automating carbon sequestration. Yes, it's yet another blockchain application. We've been talking a lot about the potential for blockchain technology to decentralize and validate all kinds of transactions in the world of sustainability, from increasing traceability across global supply chains to verifying clean energy purchases. Another blockchain application that's really gaining increasing attention these days is in carbon sequestration. It's really exciting stuff, particularly when it comes to the potential of ecological restoration to draw down greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. Here to talk about that is Gregory Landway, CEO and co-founder of Regen Networks, which applies blockchain to large-scale ecological regeneration projects. Hi, Gregory. Hey, Shauna, how are you today? Doing great. Glad to glad to be connecting. Let's let's dive right in and and let's start with regeneration. How how do you define it and what's the goal? Yeah, well, regeneration is a concept, I mean, that's as old as life itself and also recently is having kind of a a new revolutionary um, entrance onto the stage of business and 
um, civic society and even politics. And um, I really think about regeneration as um, it's, it's such has such a strong connection with the evolution and growth of capa- the capacity of living systems to sustain themselves and actually increase in health and viability over time. And so if you think about regeneration as applied to farming, for instance, and regenerative agriculture, which is the field that I come from, what we're really looking for are ways in which agriculture as an act human activity to sustain human life through the production of food or fiber or fuel or medicine actually increases the health, viability and resilience of the ecosystems that are supporting the agricultural activity. So talk a little bit about Regen Network. What's what's your vision? How does the platform actually work? So um, Regen Network is a project to bring together many different disciplines, including sort of distributed networks and blockchain, to be able to effectively monitor ecological health and reward um, stewardship by farmers and other land stewards that increases the health of ecosystems. And in addition to that functionality to reward increases in ecological health, there's also the potential that people can enter into agreements around what happens when ecosystems are decreasing in health as well. So sort of both sides of that um, are become possible when you have that level, that capacity to, to monitor and evaluate ecological health in this sort of um, distributed and decentralized way that we're building, where instead of having sort of a top-down kind of compliance-driven approach, we're really creating a community around this kind of um, intelligence system that the, the farmers and land stewards themselves are participating in helping curate and and helping govern. So give us some examples of, of use cases for the Regen Network platform and, and how you're making the business case to potential customers and community members. Yeah. So one of the um, pilot projects that we're working on right now is simply being able to monitor and verify if a farmer is practicing till or no-till agriculture. And so for many of your listeners, you may be aware that there's a big sort of soil health movement taking place right now. And one of the key sort of um, principal shifts to steward soil health is shifting away from annual tillage, which really sort of um, when soil is exposed to air, it oxidizes the carbon and actually emits carbon and it sort of degrades the long term soil health a lot. And so by shifting this sort of technique to agriculture that does not till the landscape, we can guarantee a lot more, uh, a higher degree of soil health, which correlates to a higher degree of carbon being maintained and even sequestered into the soil. So the interesting thing about till and no-till is you can verify if a field has been tilled or not at the time of year where tillage happens very easily via satellite, by by publicly available satellite information that's provided by both the European Union and the U.S. government, um, Landsat and Sentinel 
um, satellite imagery, we can tell if a field has been tilled or not tilled. And it becomes very easy to then automate rewards for farmers who are not tilling so that they're actually having sort of a bump in their income that is commensurate with the value that's generated by their choice to not till to all of the people downstream because it, it reduces erosion. You could also think of the atmosphere as being downstream from their uh, farms. They're also they're sort of participating in the carbon cycle in a way that's drawing carbon down. And so there's a lot of people, organizations and governments that benefit greatly from that simple shift from, from till to no-till agriculture. One of the sort of use cases that we're most excited about and, and most clearly illustrates the business case for this and, and how we connect users in terms of farmers with users in terms of funders is insurance and reinsurance. So if you think about um, soil carbon, um, one statistic that I like to share is that, you know, a 1% increase in soil organic matter um, creates um, a water retention increase of 50,000 gallons per acre. So that's, um, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, about 13 inches of sustained rainfall over a period of about 24 hours. That's that's basically what in most cases is a 100 or 500 year flood event. And so if you think about the news cycles that you may have seen, that's, you know, cities flooding. That's people's houses and cars being destroyed. Those are huge payout events. Um, last year alone, there were 16 billion dollar disaster events, billion dollar plus disaster events. So by farmers shifting to no-till, they're reducing the risk of payout by insurance companies. So there's this really clear business case for insurance companies to make relatively minor investments that get distributed to farmers who are stewarding their landscapes in the following way that will increase basically the profitability of the insurance companies by lowering their risk. And so that's a really clear business case and really clear functionality of region networks capacity to monitor evaluate and then reward um, these changes in land stewardship this all sounds great what what from your perspective are some of the key barriers that are keeping it from scaling there's a couple of key um, technological hurdles and then there's a lot of um, sort of user adoption hurdles so on the technology side uh, the technology around distributed networks and consensus and decentralization is still pretty young. So blockchain and other sort of distributed ledger technologies are still really working out scaling. Um, however, that's happening at a very accelerated rate. And the way that we've pieced together our system architecture, we believe that we can achieve scale pretty quickly. But I don't want to be hand wavy about that. That is a real issue. And then on the other hand, you have sort of user adoption and culture. And so blockchain is still kind of this sort of um, super new kind of even scary technology that's been embraced by the fringes and is, has still yet to be really embraced by sort of the institutions and society at large. And so in order to drive the adoption and 
effectiveness of region network, we really need to have institutions, institutional scale adoption and buy-in around this. And I think that um, is going to take us running successful pilot projects with users in sort of a, a set of different ecosystems around the world to show so that people can really see how this system works and it, have it not be theoretical. Gregory Landway is the CEO and co-founder of Regen Networks and will be speaking at our flagship Verge 18 event this October here in Oakland. Looking so forward to seeing you then, Gregory, and thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Shauna. Very grateful to be here and looking forward to seeing everyone at Verge. That's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organizations, stories, and events mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, look for a link to our other podcast, Center Stage, which features the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Hit us up by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. GreenBiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is the GreenBiz Managing Editor, and thanks to Katie Fahrenbacher for co-hosting this week's episode. Until next time, from all of us here at GreenBiz, I'm Heather Clancy. Thanks for listening.